This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. My guest today is our Assistant Editor and my colleague, Robert Erickson. Rob, welcome. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be joining. Among many other things here at the magazine, Rob is organizing our classical reading group. Yes, that's right. If it's your assumption that the editors and staff of the New Criterion sit around reading Herodotus together, you are correct. Rob is leading our symposium on the histories. I look forward to talking to him about that. More broadly, I like to discuss the topic of the classics. It could be the times, it could be a sense that we are not that far off from seeing the great works ignored or even suppressed. How long will it be until the name Thucydides comes with a trigger warning? I have recently found myself turning to the canon in my own personal and family reading. Why dwell on the present, I say, when you can focus on the ancient past? So, Rob, why don't you tell us about Herodotus, his histories, and how you are organizing this reading group? Sure thing. Herodotus's histories are known first and foremost as a history of the Persian War, uh, when the Greeks took on what was undoubtedly the most powerful empire at the time in the Mediterranean and uh, came out on top. But what is often forgotten is that books one through four of Herodotus, in fact, have very little to do, uh, at least on the surface, with these Persian Wars. In fact, the books are devoted one by one to various regions around the Mediterranean. First, you have uh, the area known as Asia Minor. Uh, In the second section, we move on to Egypt. In the third, we're treated to a history of the Persians. And in the fourth, we're in the hinterlands of Scythia. And so the task that the reader is faced with, uh, the task that Herodotus was faced with at the time is how to make sense of all these various cultures, uh, how to make sense of the landscape in which he found himself. And Herodotus, um, he got around. He had an interesting perspective. Do you want to uh, describe where he lived and how that affected his history? Sure. So Herodotus himself comes from Halicarnassus. Uh, This was on the coast of Asia Minor, along the southern end, so south of those people, those Greeks who would have been known as Ionians, uh, Herodotus would have considered himself a Dorian, one of the Greek peoples, but not necessarily the same as the Greeks that we think of today, uh, the ones that we associate with the golden age of Athens, for instance, Socrates, Plato, and the rest. Herodotus lived across the sea from all these individuals. And so his perspective on uh, the Greek war with the Persians is, in some ways, a little different from that of the Athenians. Because he lived closer to the Persians than he lived to the Athenians, isn't that right? That would be correct, geographically speaking. And part of Herodotus's task is to help the reader make sense of these distances in the Mediterranean world. On the one hand, geographically, these Greeks were cast about all regions of the Mediterranean. Uh, they extended from, from all the way the, the, the rocks of Gibraltar uh, in the west as far as there, there were Greek, Greek civilizations or Greek outposts uh, all around the Black Sea. And so on the one hand, you have this geographical distance 
but on the other hand, you have a cultural distance. So while, Her while Herodotus was geographically further away from, from these Athenians than he was to the Persians, he was culturally closer to the Athenians. Herodotus's job is to help us make sense of that. And I have to say, I very much like the book you've assigned. It's the landmark Herodotus. And you, you want to just describe uh, why you chose this book, this edition? Yes. Well, first and foremost, uh, it is simply the best value uh, that you can get. The best value money can buy. I think it was $15. I believe it was $15. Normally $15, uh, when, when you think of a, a typical book in the classics published for $15, you think you may be getting a poem or two for that price. In fact, this is the entire histories of Herodotus, heavily annotated uh, with copious maps, more maps than you may know what to do with, although you will find them helpful, in fact, as you go through. Um, extensive appendices in the back written by uh, many of the leading scholars in the field. Uh, and it, it is really as reader-friendly as an edition of the histories could be, and with good reason, because this is a very rangy work. It goes from Asia Minor to Egypt, uh, to Persia, to Scythia, before even getting to the Greeks at all. And so there's a lot of ground to cover, and uh, to to cover that ground, it helps to have a guide. Well, and I have to say, the maps in particular are, are fun. They appear on almost every page, kind of zooming around the Mediterranean with each story, each episode, and showing us exactly what we're talking about. It helps a great deal. It really helps to, the, the reader to situate these things in, in, the, in the broader context of the time, because with, without these maps, the events, the events can become... Uh, almost impossible to distinguish. And again, as a, as a historian, not just a historian, but as a, an anthropologist, if you will, as a cultural observer, Herodotus's ideas about, uh, about culture are very much tied to geography. His chapter on Egypt, which we're going to be beginning in our next session here at the office, actually begins with uh, the, first, the first probably 10 to 15 pages are devoted over to his investigation of the sources of the River Nile. If I told you that Herodotus's histories on the Persian War started with an investigation of the River Nile, you might say that Herodotus is crazy. But in fact, th these sorts of diversions turn out to be very essential to uh, Herodotus's aims in situating this war within its broader cultural And the context. way you're assigning it, we're doing it every few weeks, um, and we're doing kind of a book each time. We just did book one. You know, if someone were to pick up this landmark Herodotus is a thousand pages, it could seem a little daunting. Where do you start? How do you approach this work? If we don't have you to help. Yes, well, where, where to start? Um, I, I think that wherever you start with Herodotus, uh, you will be equally bewildered. I have always felt this way. Um, in, in, in some ways, the real challenge is making sense of the grand narrative. But at the same time, so many of these episodes that Herodotus writes about are so incredibly approachable uh, from our modern perspective. Um, and, and so in many ways, the best way to start with Herodotus, I think, is, is just to open to any page at random uh, especially in the first the first four books, and just observe his narration, uh, observe the way that he that he tells stories and really carries the reader through these stories. Um, uh, I, I would say from from what I've read, he has a great sense for trivia. Uh, he doesn't take himself 
too seriously, mm -hmm. too grandiose. His language is very approachable. And this is, I like this idea, this is the first history, right? If you're going to footnote anything, this is your first footnote. That's right. Um, the, the language is, is very approachable. Uh, Herodotus, Herodotus has an excellent eye for uh, the salacious detail, if you will. One of the opening stories in book one, in fact, is the story of, uh, the story of Gyges, who many readers may remember from Plato's Republic. Uh, as the Gyges who stumbles upon a ring of invisibility and uses it to kill the king and take the throne of Lydia. Uh, in fact, Gyges was a historical figure, but Herodotus' account of him is quite different. Uh, it is the king of Lydia at the time, Candaules, who is smitten with his wife, and he insists that Gyges come into the bedroom, hide in the corner, and watch... Uh, as his wife undresses, because the king Candaules wants to prove that his is the most beautiful wife in all the land. Uh, so to say the least, this is a very different version, probably a little more R-rated than Plato's version of, uh, of the Gyges story. But at the same time, this idea of, of shame uh, and, and, and these notions of the taboo are also very essential to the way that Herodotus sees the world. And also, I, this seems more modern, if I could say that about anything that's from the ancient world, uh, it's not a myth. It feels like, it sounds like, it reads like it really happened this way. It does. It does. It is very modern. And I think the largest reason for that is uh, you have to consider Herodotus's audience when he was writing these histories. The, the only comparison we have um, at this point in time in Greek history for, for a narrative this ambitious this, this, this uh, all-encircling, if you will, is in fact the works of Homer, which are poetic works. They came about, uh, we, we, we figure they were probably put to paper in the 8th century. Um, the question of their, their provenance before that is, is, is a different story. But um, the works of Herodotus differ from the works of Homer uh, in, in, in a very important respect, when you think about the purposes to which they were, they were put. The works of Homer, uh, it, although, although the process of, of reconstructing ancient performance is always, always a difficult question, always a fraught question, the works of Homer, we can be pretty certain, were intended for public consumption. They were recited aloud at, uh, at festivals, perhaps, and they were, they were something to be enjoyed by the community at large. Uh, Herodotus is aiming at a, a, a similarly ambitious narrative, but the way he does so addresses the reader on a much more individual level. Um, Herodotus himself was, at least uh, claim, he claims, Herodotus himself was, was the one who traveled around the entire Mediterranean undertaking this investigation. And in a sense, what he's doing throughout the work is to take the individual reader, not necessarily the reader sitting in the audience at a community, but the reader, the reader sitting at his desk, um, is, is to take the individual reader along on that investigation, along on that inquiry. The word historia, uh, the word from which we derive our word history, is in fact inquiry. And so it's a very personal journey. I don't think Herodotus it's, is a work that you'd want to read out loud in the same way you'd want to read Homer. Not at all. And it actually goes to another 
question of mine because over the summer, uh, it's true that more than one of us at the magazine commenced a reading and speaking of the Iliad. I traded off every hundred lines or so reciting the Iliad in translation with my family. Do you have a favorite translator of the Iliad and Odyssey? The touchstone has long been Richard Lattimore. I grew up reading Robert Fitzgerald's Aeneid and Odyssey, and more recently, Robert Fagel's made a splash with his own more colloquial translation, which I remember was controversial when it came out, but which, frankly, I found enjoyable to read out loud with my family. And then there have been others more recently, some of which we have reviewed in The New Criterion. It can be quite daunting, frankly, for someone to figure out which one to read. So do you have a recommendation? Well... My favorite, uh, the one closest to my heart, has always been the Lattimore. I think it is uh, the most, I think it's the best for the beginning reader because it's, it's the least adorned, you might say, in its presentation of, uh, of Homer's texts. Anytime you're translating, there's always a conflict between um, the literal sense of the translation, uh, the, the narrative, if you will, and the poetry of the translation, which is the way that we hear the words in space and time. Um, Lattimore's translation, I think, certainly prioritizes the literal sense over the poetry of, of Homer. Uh, he rather wisely says that he's not going to be Homer. He's not going to capture the music of Homer. Uh, and so he, he focuses his energies elsewhere. And this is not a knock on Lattimore. This is, this is a simple fact. Uh, that you you sort of have to choose one or the other. So if you compare the first lines of uh, somebody like Lattimore, uh, his his Iliad, sing goddess the anger of Peleus's son Achilles, uh, very somewhat stately prose, uh, but but rather straightforward in its in its. Uh, disclosure of the facts whereas if you look at Fitzgerald's first line well why don't we why don't we read the first few lines here and you read the uh, Lattimore and I'll read the Fagels and we'll kind of compare well, that sounds good okay I'd love to hear that so here's Lattimore sing goddess the anger of Peleus's son Achilles and its devastation which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans hurled in their multitudes to the house of Hades strong souls of heroes but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs, of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished since that time when there first stood in division of conflict Atreus' son, the lord of men, and brilliant Achilles. Right, so that was Richard Lattimore, 1951. And here's uh, Fagels, Robert Fagels, 1990. Rage. Goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous, doomed, that cost the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls, great fighters' souls, but made their bodies carrion, feasts for the dogs and birds, and the will of Zeus was moving towards its end. Begin, muse, when the two first broke and clashed, Agamemnon, Lord of Men, and Brilliant Achilles. So to comparing those two, what would you say? So one of the first thing that, that jumps out as you look at these translations on the page, and perhaps this may not be as apparent to the listeners, so I'll, I'll spell it out for you, uh, is the line beginnings and endings. This is something that in the original Greek, Homer is very attentive to. The words in the first position in the line which was composed in a meter called dactylic hexameter, so six feet, uh, sorry, six feet 
either long, long, or long, short, short. Um, but the first and final position in the line would have had a certain emphasis. It, and, and when you look at the words that Lattimore has chosen to begin the first four lines, for example, he begins sing. The next line begins and its devastation. Then you have hurled in the third line of heroes in the fourth. Um, beginning lines like this with uh, conjunctions, prepositions, uh, is much less emphatic than Fagel's approach. Mm -hmm. Fagel's, the first word is rage, which is in fact the first word in Homer's text as well. Uh, the first word of the second line is murderous. The third line, you have hurling again. The fourth line, you have great fighters sold. The fifth line, you have feasts. So... Well, it's actually one is hurled, one is hurling. Hurling. There's a difference. There is. Um, these, are, these are much more emphatic words in this first position of the line here. Yeah, active words. Active words, very much so. Um, and so you, you see more of a poetic attention in translations like Fagel's. And Fitzgerald as well begins with anger, uh, which Lattimore famously did not. He just began with sing. Um, anger, again, mene, is, is the word in the ancient Greek. Um, so the, the word position is just one of the elements, I think, that, that makes this translation more poetic. Uh, as you read on, you'll see that the syntax as well is much closer to the Greek in Fagel's and Fitzgerald, whereas Lattimore uh, is not really putting the reader in these sorts of verbal knots. Um, Lattimore is not putting him in the verbal knots? I don't... I, I, <laughs> I would say that no, he is not. I think his, his sense of narrative is much more straightforward. Um, compare Fagel's, you have the notion rage, the word rage repeated twice in the first line. You have rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous, doomed. All of these ideas are thrown at you in apposition and they're not really necessarily connected to one another. Uh, whereas these connections are spelled out in Lattimore. Sing goddess of the anger of Peleus' son Achilles and its devastation. We have all these nice connecting words um, which English prioritizes even more than, than the Greek would have. That's right. Well, I think Fagel's kind of sets a mood a little more with the language. That's right. The, the, the use of, of language, it's much more poetic, and mm -hmm. it sets a mood in that way. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's much more attentive to uh, uh, perhaps the resonance of some of these words, which if you're looking for an addition to read aloud, perhaps that's precisely what you're going for. Uh, but if you're looking for something for more private consumption, uh, for understanding the narrative of of Homer's of Homer's poetry uh, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, then Lattimore, I think, for the beginner, is a better starting point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I I remember the debates around Fagel's in the early '90s, and I was not in favor of his translation, which I thought took too many liberties. But I have to say, having read it out loud with my family, it was approachable. And, and it, it all comes back to this idea of, of context, which I think is really so essential uh, when you're talking about not just Homer, but really any Greek author. Um, the Greeks saw literature, saw all of the high arts, really, as such an essential part of their civic and cultural life that uh, th these, are, these are the sorts of questions we need to be aware of as we approach them. Uh, are we reading this aloud? What, what element of 
of Homer would have stood out in, in, in a group reading, perhaps, that may not be so apparent to us. And not to beat a dead horse with Herodotus, but going back to Herodotus is, you know, you have to ask these questions. What's the cultural landscape and what in what sort of uh, place was was this meant to be consumed? Where does it fit in? These are very hazy questions uh, to, to, to try to unpack, but they are rewarding ones. As well, well, I think they're also questions you tend to ask more when you're not in class, when you're doing it for your own self for your family for with your office mates you know it's it's not given to you quite the same way and you have to come to it on your own a little more that's right that's right it does it does take some um it, it does take a certain commitment on the reader uh, on the reader's behalf but i would suggest that that trying as much as you can to to approach these work works outside of the sort of uh, standard, stuffy, institutionalized context can be an extremely, extremely rewarding experience. You're from Texas. You went on to study Greek and Latin at Middlebury College and Columbia University. In between, you were the 2019-2020 Hilton Kramer Fellow at the magazine. Were you exposed to the classics growing up, and what drew you in? I was. I was. So... For my middle school and high school education, uh, I attended a, a school uh, right across the street from the University of Dallas, uh, for those who have been in the area, a school called Cistercian Prep School. The school was attached to, in fact, a Cistercian monastery founded by uh, Hungarian monks who had come over during the revolutions in Hungary uh, in the 50s and 60s. So my first introduction to the classics was in my uh, middle school Latin classes with, uh, with some of the monks, most especially Father Bernard, uh, whom, whom we all remember very fondly, all, all of us graduates of the school. Um, but after that, I said, I, I went on to study at Middlebury uh, for my undergrad and then undertook a post back at Columbia. Wow, lucky you. Something must be happening in Texas because this fall, some universities in Texas have organized what they say is the largest reading group of the Divine Comedy, moving up in time a little bit, with uh, a program called 100 Days of Dante. In our Critics Notebook, I flagged this free online event that is presenting the comedy canto by canto with short video presentations from now until Easter 2022. I have not read The Divine Comedy since college, and I have enjoyed following it. Do you think there's renewed interest in the classics and other canonical works right now? Have people been spending the pandemic working through the Loeb Classical Library, as they probably should have been? Well, we, all, we all feel, I'm sure, that we could have done a little more, a little more reading during the pandemic. Uh, but yes, I think there absolutely is, is a renewed interest in a lot of these things. I think some of this is political. Uh, tied to you know the, the the times of upheaval that that we are going through, people are looking right now for sure foundations. Uh, people are starting to ask uh, ask questions about why we believe the things that we believe, and many are rightly turning back to the classics, uh, these these fonts of wisdom, uh, and 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 the foundations on which so much of our society is built. They're turning back to the classics for answers. So I think that's I think that's part of it, uh, part of the impulse. But at the same time, I also think that going back to what I was saying earlier, there's something about stepping away from institutional life as we know it 
uh, there's something about stepping away from sort of the the uh, the popular conceptions of what these works are um, stuffy outdated uh, old dead white guys which to me is one of the most hilarious historical ironies because uh, none of the Greeks would have considered themselves white this idea of, of skin color uh, kind of being you know split into a black-white dichotomy is, is, is completely foreign to the ancient world. Um, nor were they old when they were... Nor, nor were they old. These were, yes, <laughs> these were present events at the time. Um, but uh, they're, they're, it's almost as if people have forgotten uh, the things that are supposed to be holding you back from, from encountering the classics. Uh, and whether you want to call it desperation, whether, whether you want to call it... Um, just a, a, a simple uh, lack of inhibition. Uh, I, I think that people have felt that they can turn to and, and pick these works up um, without necessarily the, the approval of a, of a governing institution, uh, but really just uh, as something private to be understood and, 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 um, and consumed uh, inside the home, uh, whether your companion is, is Herodotus or Homer uh, whether it's whether it's Euripides or, or Socrates, uh, these are figures that can prove very very real even in the modern modern imagination. It sounds like you work at the New Criterion <laughs> saying such things. <laughs> uh, well, that's certainly our mission statement here at the magazine. Uh, so, what comes after Herodotus for us? Well, we haven't decided yet. Um, there are many directions that one can go from Herodotus. Uh, Herodotus has lots to say. About Homer, uh, he in fact disputes Homer's claim that the Trojans, that Paris uh, came and abducted Helen and took her back to Troy. According to Herodotus, uh, Paris actually spent the entirety of the Trojan War in Egypt. And so uh, one obvious question is, why does he have this bone to pick with Homer? Why is he so insistent on correcting the record? So we could turn back to Homer uh, and, and explore the sort of poetic backdrop against which uh, Herodotus and really so much of the Greek world uh, against which it, it, it sort of defined itself. Uh, or we could go forward in time to, to Plato and some of, the other, um, some of the other Greek philosophers because Herodotus uh, is, is really one of the first examples, really the first thorough example we have of what you might call pre-Socratic thought. Um, after, from about the fourth century onward, uh, Greek thought, at least in, in the popular imagination, uh, is really kind of aligned with, with the sorts of disputes, philosophical disputes that were going on um, in Athens between folks like Plato and Aristotle. But uh, in fact, there was a wide breadth of, of Greek thought and philosophy, philosophy before that. We don't necessarily have access to all of it, uh, but Herodotus, once again, the, the, the fellow who lived across the Aegean Sea, all the way over in Asia Minor, uh, has a very, very different idea of, of truth, uh, or, or rather, I should say, a very different approach to uh, investigating truth. And so we might turn from, from his investigation, his inquiry into truth, into Plato uh, and and the Republic, or perhaps some other uh, some other of, of his dialogues. Well, it's also interesting that Herodotus does connect 
current events to what happens in Homer because it all starts with Helen or even before Helen and these abductions and he gives the the Persian perspective that if we just had ignored these abduction issues it w- nothing would have happened we would have all had peace why do, right. we, why do you make such a big deal about it that's right he he almost suggests that it's the Greeks fault for getting entangled in Persian affairs and uh, bringing down the the Persian Persian might upon them uh, which is certainly not how many Greeks at the time would have seen it. They would have been very opposed to this idea that they had picked a fight with Persia. Mm-hmm. And how about Thuc- how does Thucydides fit into this? So Herodotus was called by Cicero, in fact, the father of history. Uh, it would not be entirely inaccurate to say that Thucydides was his son. Uh, Thucydides wrote a history of the Peloponnesian War, which started in about 431 BC and ran to 404, if my dates are correct. Uh, Thucydides himself would have fought in this war, witnessed many of the events firsthand. By contrast, around the time this war had started is roughly when people think that Herodotus was wrapping up his work on the histories. Uh, so it's it's generally it's generally thought that he would have written the histories from 450 to 430 BC, about the Persian War, which took place at the beginning of the 5th century, uh, in, in the 90s and 80s, uh, wrapping up in, in, in 480-479. So near contemporaries, uh, it's, it's, certainly, it's, it's unclear whether they would have necessarily overlapped, uh, but Thucydides very much takes aim at Herodotus, uh, maybe a, a slightly resentful son of Herodotus, he takes aim at his approach to history. And you don't see the, the sorts of cultural excursions or diversions uh, in Thucydides that you do in Herodotus. Thucydides is really the, the, the first to write what we would call history today. There is a whole bunch in Herodotus that we would not consider history today. But it's hard to blame him because he didn't have any examples to follow. Mm-hmm. Whereas Thucydides had the benefit of, to my mind, one of the most brilliant writers uh, ever to follow as, as, as Herodotus blazed that trail. So I'm more than willing to excuse some methodological inconsistencies, perhaps, uh, in Herodotus on account, of, on, uh, on account of the ground that he broke. Well, I I, um, I love these connections, uh, these generational connections. I remember I found I I thought I did something very clever in I don't know tenth grade, ninth grade when I connected Homer uh, through uh, Virgil, through Dante, through Conrad to the movie Apocalypse Now. <laughs> And you can draw a line all the way there. You, you can draw if, a line. If you want to draw that line. It's a mistake to think it's the only line that exists. <laughs> but that line is there. To the there. 10th grade mind, it's the coolest line you It, it is, you it is absolutely the coolest line. And I, I remember writing, I think I was a couple of years behind, I was writing a paper on Apocalypse Now in, in 12th grade. So uh, making a, a similar argument with, with Conrad. I don't know if I took it all the way back to Homer. But um, the, the appeal of these, of these ideas, I mean, is, is, is permanent. It's permanent, uh, and it, it, it absolutely, these are lines that, that can be drawn. Uh, whether or not that's all we should be doing is drawing lines from Apocalypse Now to, uh, you know, <laughs> Greek culture is, is a different question, but, but uh, it's important to recognize that that heritage exists. 
Well, we're really enjoying the reading group, Rob. Thank you for organizing it. Next up is Book Two and Egypt, I believe. Book Two and Egypt, and three. We're at, we're throwing in three and four with uh, with Persia and Scythia, so it'll be a triple feature. So we're going to meet right after uh, the Thanksgiving break uh, for that. My guest today has been Robert Erickson, assistant editor at the New Criterion. Rob, thank you for joining us. Thanks, James. Really appreciate it. <laughs>